Hey, this is Jeremy McCrory, and this is the Run for Jesus podcast, a ministry podcast that will help you run the race of faith in your Christian life like never before. Thank you all for being here. We're going to be in the book of Hosea. So we're going to start out with Hosea chapter 1. Uh, I was telling the story a minute ago, one of the other times I've taught Hosea, I just have to let you know there's some words in here where uh, you might not have heard spoken from me before. It's in the Bible. I'm reading from the page. Uh, don't write letters. <laughs> uh, but there are some things in here that, that God uses this representation to talk about the, the kids, the Israelites. And uh, his, his hope is that Israel, as Jehovah's dishonored wife, repudiated, you know, in this sense, but to be restored. So there's so many different characters in here that represent the house of Judah, the, the house, the kingdom of Israel, and the people. And so these people, it means something more. It's kind of like if you ever listen to some of the ways that Jesus speaks to a crowd and then explains the things in the background. There's more going on to the story than just what's being read. So Hosea chapter 1 what I wanted to do is give you a quick overview of Hosea, and then we'll look at Hosea chapter 1. So uh, the Bible Project does a great job at this. They say things and, and do artwork a little bit better than I can actually explain things in totality. But uh, I'm going to start off with just an overview of the book of Hosea to give you an idea, and then we're going to dive into the first chapter. The book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the story from 1 Kings. Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos, and in the year 722, the big bad Assyrian Empire swooped in and decimated Israel. Again, see the story in 2 Kings. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. The book is a collection of some 25 years of his preaching and writing. It's almost all poetry. And this whole collection has been designed to have three main sections. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it works. The opening part tells the story of Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer, who commits adultery. Now, it's not totally clear whether Gomer slept around with other men before or only after they got married, but they did have three children together and things fell apart. The important point is that God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he is to go find her, to pay off her debts to her lovers, and to commit his love and faithfulness to her once again. And then God says that all of this, the broken and repaired marriage, the children, it's all a prophetic symbol telling the story of God's relationship to Israel. So God has been like a faithful husband to Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. He asked them to be faithful to him alone. But then he brought Israel into the promised land, and they took all the abundance that he gave them, and they dedicated it to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so God has a legitimate reason. He could end the covenant and divorce Israel, and he thinks about doing so, but instead. He says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew his covenant with them. And he says why? It's purely because of his own love, compassion, and faithfulness. 
Hosea then spells out what all this means. He says the consequences for Israel's rebellion will be imminent defeat by other nations and exile. But there's hope for future restoration. One day Israel will once again repent and come back to worship their God. And Hosea says he will place over them a new messianic king from the line of David who will bring God's blessing. And so this opening section introduces all the main ideas of the book. Israel has rebelled, and God's going to bring severe consequences, but God's own covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. And so in the remaining sections of the book, Hosea's poetry explores these themes in more depth. So there are two collections of his accusations and warnings for Israel, and then each of these is concluded by a very hopeful poem about God's mercy and hope for the future. So chapters 4 through 10, Hosea explores the causes and effects of Israel's unfaithfulness. He says numerous times that Israel lacks all knowledge or understanding of God. The Hebrew word to know, which is yada, it's more than just intellectual activity. It describes personal relational knowledge. It's the difference between just knowing about someone and then actually knowing that someone. And God wants Israel to know him like that, in a relationship. He wants them to experience his love for them and become the kind of knowledge that transforms their hearts and lives so that they love him in return. And so this is why Hosea is constantly exposing the hypocrisy of Israel's worship. He constantly shows how they're breaking the Ten Commandments, how they're allowing grave injustice in their communities, and then they go to their sacred temples and they offer sacrifices to God like everything is just fine. But it's not fine. And not only because of their hypocrisy, but because they're worshiping all of these other gods too. He mentions many times their altars to Baal at the cities of Bethel and Gilgal. And not only have they given their allegiance to other gods, Hosea repeatedly accuses Israel for trusting in their political alliances with Egypt and Assyria. So instead of trusting God to protect them, they want to become like these nations and rely solely on military power. And God says it's all going to come crashing down on their heads. Because in not too long, Assyria will turn on them and come to ravage their lands. In this other section of warning, Hosea gives an ancient Israelite history lesson to show how this family's been unfaithful from the beginning. So he alludes to the patriarch Jacob's lying and treachery. Remember Genesis 27 and 28. He alludes to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Remember the book of Numbers. He alludes to their appointment of the corrupt king Saul who led the people into sin and disaster. Remember the stories in 1 Samuel. This is all Hosea's way of saying some things in this family never change. So what hope does Hosea have? Well, we know from chapter 3 that God's going to do something to save and restore his people. And that's what these two concluding chapters explore. Chapter 11 is beautiful. The poem depicts God as a loving father who raised his son Israel and then shared everything with him. But the son grew up and rebelled and turned on the father, taking advantage of his generosity. <coughs> In this poem, God is emotionally torn apart. One moment he's angry, and naturally he says he's going to bring severe consequences, but the next moment he's heartbroken. And then he says that he's moved by his mercy and compassion, and he's going to forgive the son that he loves. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart churns inside of me, all my compassion is aroused. And so while God did allow Israel to be conquered by Assyria, face the consequences, that's not God's final word. There's still hope. And that's what the last chapter is about.
Hosea calls Israel to repent and turn back to their God, but he knows that it won't last because it never has before. And God says that one day he will heal their waywardness and love them freely. God goes on to describe this new healed Israel as a lush tree that will grow deep roots and broad branches and offer shade and fruit to all of the nations. It's an image of God's promise to Abraham, how Israel was to become a blessing to the nations. And God's saying, if that's ever going to happen, it's going to require an act of God's grace and healing power to repair the deep brokenness and sinful selfishness of the human heart, so that... God's people can receive his love and love him in return. This is what God promises to do. Now, after this poem concludes, we find the very last words of the book. They're like an appended note. They're likely from the author who collected Hosea's poetry and now wants to speak to you, the reader, for a second. And he says, who is wise and discerning to understand all of this? In other words, Hosea's poems. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them. So the author wants you to know that Hosea's ancient poetry to northern Israel is not locked in the past. It reveals deep truths about God's character and purposes and human nature. And while God should and does bring his justice on human evil, his ultimate purpose, his heart, is to heal and to save his people. And that's what the book of Hosea is all about. All right. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 1, and if you're one of those that likes to go back and look at things several times, you can go and look on YouTube. It has the Bible Project, it has the book of Hosea, and you can watch that in its entirety again. Or if you're watching on my cell phone from your house, you can watch it in that way. But one of the things that he talks about within the scriptures and commentary is spiritual adultery. Now, these words put together mean this. It's connected to God's covenant and relationship with His people. Now, one of the commentary writers says this. He cites Ezekiel 16.8 and explains it like this. God, as a husband to His people, the spiritual relationship between God and His people, defined in terms of the intimate and the exclusive bonds of marriage, but also, secondly, God is jealous for His people's affection according to Exodus 34:14, Just as a husband and wife are jealous in their relationship and love, so God is jealous in His affections for His people. Now, how many of you know what the word Hosea means? Well, the name Hosea. What does it mean? Salvation. So, it makes very much sense of all of these elements of what's going on in the chapter of what it's referencing to the people, the kingdom. And it leads us in this direction as we jump into the chapter of Hosea chapter 1. And the first thing we see in here is when the Lord speaks, we should heed His words, shouldn't we? When the Lord says something, we can't turn and shake our heads and say, I know better. Because the Lord has a deeper understanding of even us than we even know. He sees the whole canvas and the whole picture here. But we should heed His words. Verse 1 and 2 says this. It says, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, son of Bere, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. So he's saying all those things to tell you when it's taking place. 
So if you go look through the, the annals of uh, their timeline, you see exactly where it's coming in here. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaken the Lord. So this makes no sense of why this would be written unless you understand the background, right? The background is that these people were unfaithful to the covenant which they made with the Lord. And so the Lord is using this symbolic relationship to represent that which has gone wrong. Hosea 1.3 says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dilbum, and she conceived and bore him a son. What do we know in this passage? That just like a lot of the verses in the Bible, when you are disobedient to God, when you are blatantly disobedient, over and over again, there's punishment, right? There's punishment for our disobedience. There's punishment for the people as they have disobeyed through the entirety of time. And so this is what the Lord says about that. It said, the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel for just a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put it into the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord, Lord said to him, name her Lorumha, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Now in reading that, it doesn't look very good, does it? The house of Israel looks very dismal and dark, right? Because of what they have done, this spiritual adultery in that sense, it sounds like he's about ready to bring everything down on them. And so if you are reading to this point, you might say, well, there has to be a way. There has to be a way back. There has to be a way out. There has to be a better way than where the people are. We have to give them a chance to repent. We have to give them a chance to turn back towards God. But what we know about the Lord is this. Some of the qualities He has are that He is compassionate. When the Lord is compassionate to me and you, what does that mean to us? That means... Despite our wrongdoing, despite our sin, despite the things that we do, He still affords us a means of restoration, doesn't He? It's not because of our own deserving, right? Because none of us does. It's because He loves us. And it's because He loves us that He promises this restoration for the house of Israel. He promises and He is compassionate in that way. Verse 7 says, But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, horsemen. And when she had weaned Lord Ramah, she conceived and gave birth to a son, named him Loami. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Where do we hear that at the first time? Who does he say that to? The Lord says that to Abraham, right? So this is a connected point between, okay, I have not forgotten what I've promised. I have not forgotten that covenant back in Abraham, even though you've done some of the same things that the people do again and again and again with these different groups of people. It says, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are son, the sons of the living God. See, only a living God could do what He is doing. 
So you've got to think of it. There, there are so many different world religions. If you study all of them, you will be able to go to their gravesides and find remnants of them. You'll be able to find a whole lot of things. Now, you will be able to find a whole lot of things like when Jesus lived, the pottery and the things that were around that proved that he existed during that time period. But if you look at his grave, and I love it, every, every time of the year where it gets around Easter, they do one of these National Geographic things and they go to that place and they're like, this is Jesus' grave. And there's nothing there. You think about it. He is a living God. That means that He has the power to release mankind from their sin, no matter how bad it is. So He can release these people that have gone to the Assyrians, that gone to these other people groups, that have made offerings out of what the Lord has blessed them with, and He can return them back in the right presence before Him. And so it says in verse 11, And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And so that led me to ask the question, what is the day of Jezreel? What's the day of Jezreel? Well, according to Hosea 1.5, but also the commentary I was reading on this, it said the time predicted for the execution of vengeance for the deeds of blood committed there. So these people, even though there was a path of restoration back, there was a compassionate God back, it would not go without punishment, right? We have been punished for our sins, but the ultimate price does not stay with us, right? There's consequences for the things that we've done that landed us in the state that we're in. So it led me to ask a number of questions based on Hosea chapter 1. And I love how it means more than just what you read. So if you read it at face value, you're not going to get what it's go- where it's going. But if you read it a little bit deeper, it shows the compassionate love of God. So it led me to ask some questions that I want to ask of you, and then we're going to have a time of prayer for our, our uh, team that's on missions. The first question this chapter led me to ask is, are you one who listens when God speaks? And that requires for you and I to spend quality time and quantity time with the Lord, right? Not, you know, that's the reason I'm a proponent of, of having a Bible, of having distractions out of the way, of having things where you and it's you and the Bible and a cup of coffee or or whatever you start your day with, however it is, and you give that one-on-one time. If it's at the beginning of the day, if it's before you go to bed, if you can do that. If I sat still at the end of the day, I would go to sleep like some of y'all do on Sunday morning. I would go directly to sleep and I would be the one snoring. So it doesn't work for me then. So I have to ask myself, when can I listen When can I spend time with God uninterrupted so that I will be able to know that still small voice when he speaks, right? Because sometimes it's loud, right? Sometimes the devil can put a whole lot of junk in our lives. It is loud. And it's very loud. And you can't discern what's going on. You've got to know God's voice. Life can get difficult and arduous and hard. And and so many things can come our way. We've got to listen when God speaks. The second thing it led me to ask in, the, in all of this is, what will it take? And I think this is so key. What will it take for our country to seek God as it should and listen to Him? What will it take for our country to seek God and listen to Him? 
if the people of Israel were doing such abhorrent things as they were doing, are we not doing similar things in the way that we're living in this world? We're making all kind of idols. We're worshiping all kinds of God. People have turned their back on God and walked in their own way. They have worshiped their own right. Even today, I was talking to somebody and they said, there's so many discussions about right and wrong and the end times and Jesus and what, what we think this is going to be. I said, there's so many people that believe that there's a sense of control for us, relative, right? That means that I can change it. But there's absolute truth in Scripture. It's what it says. It's just like I gave the example, and it may be too harsh of an example, but I said, if you were to walk in traffic, maybe in Starkville, when all the cars are busting by, and you were just to walk out there, and you said, I will not get ran over. You're going to get ran over, right? You can say all day, I'm not going to get ran over. I choose to believe that I am mightier than those automobiles come flying through town that don't look. I want to walk out in traffic. And what's going to happen every time? It's going to get you. The same thing goes. There are people in this world that choose to live without God. There's going to become a time that they're going to have to answer to God in judgment for the things that they've done. And I believe that's going to come sooner than later. There's so many different things in the world that's leading in that direction. Do I know when Jesus will return? I don't. Do I see indicators everywhere? Yeah. It doesn't take long to figure out, if you look around, just how bad things are getting. But there's still a compassionate God. If He can take what the Israelites did, what the house of Judah did, what the people did through the entirety of the Old Testament, and it was some bad stuff, and He can forgive them and love them and have compassion and send them Jesus, then He can do that for our land if we turn from our wicked ways and follow Him. He will do what? He promises. He will heal our land. The answer that we need is the answer that He's given to those people. He's saying, you have turned away from me, but I love you too much to leave you that way. If you'll listen to Him, He'll bring you back into restoration in right order. The third question at Linton that goes with this. What happens when everyone turns their back on God as God's people did? The consequences are there. We don't escape consequences for disobedience, right? When our kids do things and get out of line, we give them consequences, right? Whatever it is in your household. In my household, it was a whooping. You know, and, and, and you can't explain that to somebody who's not from the South. I didn't just get slapped on the hand. It was either looked like, go get your own switch, go get a fly swatter if you're at your grandmother's house, get a belt if your dad was doing it, or it was go to your room sometimes. You know, it was a number of things, and you never knew where it was going to land, but you didn't want daddy to come home, because you knew when your daddy gets here, what's going to happen? It's going to hurt. It's going to be bad, because he's been working all day, and he's going to come home, and his correction's going to be right where it needs to be. And I'm going to remember it the next time. If God brings corrective measure in our lives, we need to remember it the next time and we need to live differently. Because our Heavenly Father desires for us to know Him and walk with Him intimately and gives us the opportunity to change in our lives. So there's consequences, but there's still that loving God. But God in all things. I love that in Scripture. But God. How many of you have ever read that in Scripture? It has that, that, that one little 
two-word kind of thing that says, but God. But God shows up. But God does this. But God changes everything. But God can do things that we can't. God does the unimaginable. And so God affords us that means of forgiveness and restoration. There's no other way, right? We can say, I forgive you, right? We can, we can get back on the same page. But my forgiveness of you is not like God's. God forgives and forgets. I'm likely to have issues, <laughs> even though I've forgotten, you. forgotten what you've done. I just, I just can't let it go sometimes. But, but He gives us that perfect forgiveness and restoration. And so it, all of these things led me to ask, will the country, will the people in our community, and will we take His offer? If we say, look how bad the world, <coughs> excuse me, look how bad the world is getting. Look how many people are walking away from the faith or choosing their own path or not even caring who God is, much less if they should ever go to a church. Look at all the ways that things are going in this world. There are churches that accept you know, homosexuality and all these other things as leaders. and they, You can get in, into the weeds of all of that, but there are so many people who don't believe like God's Word is absolute. God's Word says what it says, means what it means. But we can look at this and say, if God will take this approach with His own children, how much more will He do for us who are grafted in later? You know, He gave His one and only Son to pay a permanent price for the sin in our lives. Every, every man that went before, every high priest that came before, it was just a temporary fix because they had to come back around to do it again and again, right? But Jesus says, you know what? You're going to have to seek forgiveness. You're going to have to repent. But my love for you will not diminish. My love for you will not change. He still loved these people despite all the things that they did wrong. I mean, how many commandments did they break? <laughs> how many? In that one little area that we just read in chapter 1. There's a lot, right? How many commandments did we break? How many things that God says to do, do we not listen to? I want us to really think of that as we go through the book of Hosea in the weeks to come, just how poignant this is. And we think sometimes, I have had people say, well, the Old Testament, that's outdated, right? We don't need to read the Old Testament. I'm just going to read the New Testament. How will you know the depth and the history of God's Word if you don't ever go back and read through the Old Testament? Now, I don't always understand every single thing. Like, 3,000 people begat whoever in those like chapters and try to say the words without my tongue you know, biting it or something. you know. But each one of those people have significance in the house of God. We all, each one of us, have significance in the house of God. Think about how many spiritual people that came along in your faith, that were in your family, that led you to here today. Maybe it was a faithful grandparent that told you about Jesus and drug you to church and made sure you were there, swatted you and pinched you, you know, whatever it took to get you through church so that you would get to where you are today, where you're telling the next generation and you're telling others about the faith that you have. That, to me, is a legacy that we can pass on to make sure our kids, our grandkids, and those that come after us still have the faith of our forefathers. And I love the way the Bible puts that into perspective. He just wants to reunite us the way things are. The way things he wanted things to be back in the book of Genesis.
So let's pray, y'all. Father God, we come at such a time as this. Father, we thank you for the rich blessings you give us. God, we pray, God, that we take distractions out of our lives. God, and we turn as a people and we repent. Father, that you might restore us. And not only restore us, but make, her, make us better than we were before, God. God, you love us when we don't deserve it. You offer a path of restoration, even though we should, by all means, have your back turned to us. Father, you forgive us and you're so good to us, God. God, I pray for our nation, God, that you heal our nation. I pray for our world, that you heal our world. But also, God, I pray that you start in our hearts, God. God, because nothing will get better if we don't start ourselves doing the very things we're reading about. God, I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Run for Jesus podcast with Jeremy McCrory. Tune in next time for more relevant sermons and ministry helps to help you run the race of faith in your Christian life like never before.